feeling stressed, left without gravity, in an environment that gets more and more complicated and complex every day, untangle your mind and go back to the roots of clear thinking. Get the original text of the Leviathan by Hobbes, the two treatises of government by Locke, the social contract by Rousseau, plus the U.S. Constitution from Pennsylvania, bound together into just one practical book. That's right. Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and the U.S. Constitution, bound together into just one practical book to keep your costs low. In this video, Jordan Peterson talks about order and chaos. So the chaos, that, the chaos that's conceptualized as the ground of being is, is partly the potential out of which matter arises, but it's also partly the state of confusion that you're in when, everything, when order falls apart around you. And that, that makes sense if you think about it, because the order that's being described in Genesis is the order that makes up being. And so it makes sense when the order that makes up your being collapses that you're going to fall into something that's equivalent to the original chaos. It's a very interesting way of thinking about it. And I don't think it's metaphorical, by the way. It's not metaphorical. It's a different way of describing reality. So it's not like a metaphor for matter. It's different than that. It's, it's an analysis of the structural components of being. And basically, what you have is chaos order and the thing that mediates between them. And we've talked about that already as being the fundamental tripartite constituents of, of reality itself. There has to be potential. There has to be something to interpret the potential. And then there has to be something to mediate between the two things. So, in some sense, what the Christians did with the idea of logos by associating that with Christ was to make Christ, who's a redeemer figure, into the same thing that generated order out of chaos at the beginning of time. And so that put, kind of puts him in the same conceptual class as Horus and in the same conceptual class as Marduk. And I'll, I'll tell you later that it also puts him in the same conceptual class as Buddha, but I'll get to that story later. So, so also what that means is that there's an idea that, that lurks latently in Christianity that the ideal person is a, and that's partly the person who accepts the necessity of death and rebirth as part of the redemptive process, is identical to the thing that at the beginning of time called order out of chaos. It's a phenomenal conception. And one of the things that I've tried to argue in a paper that no one's ever read is that um, the reason that Western culture is predicated on the idea that human beings have an unalterable divinity, which is basically the source of their natural rights, is because it's predicated on the idea that the individual consciousness partakes of the process that's capable of pulling order out of chaos or capable of mediating between the two. And that there's something that's literally divine about that. And one of the things that I also promote in this paper um, is that you all believe that because you act on it. Like you accept the idea that, that there are natural rights and that people have individual rights and that they have intrinsic value. You don't know why. And you don't know what that idea is predicated on from a metaphysical perspective. But you do accept it and you do act it out. And so to me what that means is you believe it whether you know it or not. Now you can argue about that because you can argue about what it means to believe something. But I tend to think that belief exists in relationship to action rather than into, in relationship to objective conceptualization. 
And so the idea, and then there's a very interesting little twist in the Genesis story, because what happens when God makes man and woman, and this is a very bizarre thing, is that he basically says that men and women are made in the image of God. Now, God in that particular story is plural, but that's not really relevant to our, to our concerns. And I think that's remarkable in a variety of ways, because number one, while we don't exactly know what the image of God means, but we can place that in relationship to the idea that it was the word of God that, that extracted order out of chaos, and so what that seems to intimate is that it's the capacity of the human being to extract order from chaos that's equivalent to divinity, perhaps in a reduced form. And I think that that's a... I think we believe that. I think that we believe that. And I think it's right, even worse than that. And then the other thing that's so damn bizarre about that is it's not just men. It's women, too. And that's, some, that's something that I have a very difficult time accounting for, because I don't understand why a society that was as deeply patriarchal as, say, the ancient Jewish society, why in the world that that would also be attributed to women? But it is, anyways, it doesn't matter. So, the, you know, the, 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 the identity with God is equally distributed between men and women. So, that's quite cool. So, anyways, back to Rabbi Itzchak Marmerstein. He describes Teom as the unfathomable, undifferentiated womb out of which existence, as we experience it, emerges. All potential exists in this primordial energy or state. So it's potential. So in some sense, that's what the chaos is potential. And so I've been thinking about that for a long time too, because it seems to me that what people actually interact with is potential. You know, we think we interact with matter, but I don't think we do. I think we interact with all the various possibilities that matter might manifest. And that's not the same thing. So that when you're interfacing with your existence, what you're doing is taking a very large number of potential futures, which are basically laid out in front of you, and actualizing one or the other as a matter of your choice. And so I think the thing you're interacting with isn't matter. It's the multiple potential states that matter could manifest itself in. And I think that's what we call potential. And consciousness seems to collapse that into, an act, into, into actuality. So... In this video, Jordan Peterson explains two different ways of adapting to the world. All right. So if you look at the motor strip, this is called a homunculus. And when Wilder Penfield was initially doing open, like brain surgery on people with epilepsy, you know, you're generally conscious during brain surgery, which is a rather horrifying thing to contemplate, because, you know, they don't want to cut out a part that you might need, and so they poke around in there often with electrodes, and, you know, you can report what's happening to you. Um, well, what P Penfield did was, was do electro elect electrode mapping of the manner in which your body was represented in the primary motor area that was responsible for, for sequencing action. And what he found was this. Now, usually you don't see it like that, because the, the way your body is laid out on your brain, it's sort of torn apart and stretched out over the motor strip. And there's weird, there's weird places where the parts come together. So, for example, there's a motor, cord, a motor homunculus, and there's a sensory homunculus, and one of the weird characteristics of the sensory homunculus is that the genital region is right beside the region for the feet. 
And one of the things that you can infer from that is that's why people take such delight in such things as foot massages and why feet fetishes, for example, are quite common. Because the areas do bleed into one another. So that's pretty amusing. So anyways, there's the homunculus. And you might say, well, that's how your brain thinks of your body in terms of what you can do with your body. And so that's like a human being. That's, in fact, that might be more what a human being is like than the human being you see when you just look at a human being. And what you see is, well, we're pretty handy and we're pretty damn mouthy. And so one of the ways you can think about that, and I think it's right, is that human beings run around taking things apart and putting them back together with their hands, and then they talk about that all the time. And, and we have a tremendous amount of control over our tongue. That's wired up right at birth, by the way, and lips as well. So that's a primary investigative organ, you know, and it's used for multiple purposes. So, you know, children really explore the world with their lips and tongue. And, of course, it's a primary area for sexual exploration. But it's also, um, uh, it's also the, the part of our body that we use to transform the things that we can do with our hands into patterns of communication so that we can speak about what we do with our hands so that other people can learn how to do that with their hands. And if you look at your hands, what you'll see is you're mostly thumbs, right? And, you know, one of the things that you always learn from scientists is that it's an opposable thumb that makes us human. And certainly the thumb, especially on the right hand, is like, you see, you've got more motor cortex devoted to your damn thumb than you do to your whole body. And that's because, well, try picking up a wrench with your back. You know, you're just not going to get very far. And so it's really useful to think about the brain body in this homuncular fashion because it also helps you understand other things because you'll hear people say, well, dolphins are superhuman in their intelligence because their encephalization quotient is higher than ours. And the encephalization quotient is the ratio of brain tissue to the ratio to body weight, fundamentally. Brain weight to body weight. Yeah, yeah, that's a measure of intelligence. But the thing is, is that imagine a dolphin homunculus. It's like, what the hell are they going to do with all that intelligence? Like, nose up some dirt on the bottom of the ocean? That's about it. They can't build anything. They can't take things apart and put them back together. And so, whatever their brain is being used for, it has very little relationship to what our brain is being used for. Our bodies are articulated, where a dolphin is sort of like a test tube. You know, and they can swim like mad, and they're obviously extremely playful, which is one of the attributes of intelligent creatures. But they're not taking things apart and putting them back together like we are. And that's what we're doing all the time. We do that with our speech. Is in fact, the, the essence of taking things apart and putting them back together. You know, and the hypothesis are, with, with regards to speech development, that we, we developed our capacity for articulated movement before we developed our capacity for language. And that the only reason we ever developed a capacity for language was because it sort of developed as a secondary consequence of our developed ability to produce articulated action. Now, the two things probably spiraled across time. So I don't think you can, you know, it's not a chicken came first and then the egg issue. It's that chickens have eggs and eggs have chickens and that just keeps going. But the point is, is that our ability to represent things in an articulated manner is directly related to our ability to use our joints in an articulated manner. And so that's what we're like in the world. We're out there doing things to it and then talking about it. We're very handy and we're very mouthy. So that's useful to know because that's sort of how the brain pictures the body. 
And the fact that the brain pictures the body that way means that that's how the brain conceptualizes the body as an entity for use in, in, in the environment. And so you say, well, how do human beings adapt? Well, we run around taking things apart and putting them back together with our hands and talking about it. And we're very good at that. And so you could say, well, in some sense, that's our primary... I think that that's... It's a reflect... No. It's a reflection of the same processes that gave rise to the idea of the hero. Because there's two ways of adapting to the world, in some sense. One way is just to do what everyone else has done that's always worked. All animals do that. That's what they do. Like bears now and bears a thousand years ago, it's like they're the same bear, even though they're very complicated. Same with chimps, you know. People say chimps have culture and can make tools. It's like, that's wrong. And here's why it's wrong. If a chimp could increase its domain of cultural expertise by a tenth of a percent a generation, which is like nothing, well, run that for seven million years at compound interest, and what happens? Well, you get Toronto, right? I mean, I don't know how much we transform our culture with each generation, but it doesn't have to be very damn much for there to be cities after two million years of iteration. Well, chimps are still living in the jungle. Now, they do use tools, but what seems to happen is that the environment, and, and they do use different tools in different locales, but what seems to happen is that the environment suggests the tools to them. So they have a certain level of intelligence, and they can figure out how to use what's at hand, and what's at hand is different in different places, so they use different tools. But that doesn't mean they're thinking up different tools. They're not, clearly, because there's no accumulation. There's no accumulation of culture, so I don't see how you can escape from that mathematical argument. And you can make the same argument to pretty much any other creature. You know, even ants. It's like they're making the same damn anthills they were making, oh, God only knows how, how long ago. I mean, they're very successful at it, but there's, there's no innovation. And so being the same as the things that lived before you that lived is a pretty good strategy. But that isn't the human strategy. Or it's actually half the human strategy. Because half our strategy is to do what everyone else has always done. And the other half is to fix that where it's not working very well. Or at least to try to fix it. And I think this is an excellent representation of the abilities we have embodied to do precisely that. So... In this video, Jordan Peterson talks about two research studies that show big factors involved in having an authoritarian government. In particular, the social immune system would help to maintain order by suppressing any actions or individuals that deviate from a group's accepted social traditions. So, it has been reported, for instance, that regions with higher levels of disease preference, prevalence tend to be associated with higher levels of social conformity and autocratic rule. Individuals who feel more vulnerable to disease likewise report higher levels of ethnocentrism and xenophobia. Such basic concerns about pathogen avoidance may thus contribute to the desire for order and tradition among conservatives, along with the harsh moral judgments associated with violations of the social order. In particular, severe moral judgments may be a key mechanism by which the social immune system, instantiated in conservative practices and policies, aims to eliminate exposure to deviate social elements that may increase the risk pathogen exposure. Okay, now, we wrote that about two years ago. Now, there was a paper published about three months ago in Clause 1, which you can look up online. I've got the reference for it here. Now, this paper is absolutely mind-boggling. So, I told you guys 
what effect sizes are big, right? Like 0.2, that's pretty good. 0.3, that's larger than about two-thirds of social science studies published. 0.5, it's like, well, you're dancing on the moon because you just don't get a correlation of 0.5 between two things unless you're extraordinarily lucky. It's like 95th percentile effect size. Okay, so this paper was published about three months ago. Now, I'm going to read you the abstract, okay? And then I'm going to show you, briefly show you the data. According to the parasite stress hypothesis, authoritarian governments are more likely to emerge in regions characterized by high prevalence of disease-causing pathogens. Recent cross-national evidence is consistent with this hypothesis, but there are inferential limitations associated with the evidence. Causality. You don't know what direction, what direction the relationship is. We report two studies that address some of those limitations and provide further tests of the hypothesis. Study one revealed that parasite prevalence, and so that's parasites or infectious diseases, predicted, strongly predicted, cross-national differences on measures assessing individuals' authoritarian personalities. And this effect statistically mediated the relationship between parasite prevalence and authoritarian governance. So what does that mean? The more infectious diseases in the area, the more likely the individuals in that area are to have authoritarian political beliefs, and it's the authoritarian authoritarian political beliefs of the people, the individuals in the area, that produces the authoritarian government. So it isn't pathogen prevalence, authoritarian government, authoritarianism. It's not a top-down thing. It's a bottom-up thing, and it's driven by individuals, and that seems to be driven by just how likely they are to catch something that's nasty and infectious. So then you think, well, in the West, well, what's the probability you're going to catch something nasty and infectious? It's like, well, very low. So you're liberal. Now, wouldn't that be something if that was actually the case? You know, is that the West is liberal because it has plumbing. It could easily be. I mean, plumbing is no trivial thing, right? I mean, you think of all the things you don't want to do without. So, like in Canada, plumbing would be number one, and then maybe heat would be number two, or maybe you'd reverse those, but it's way the hell up there. Study two tested the parasite stress hypothesis on a sample of traditional small-scale studies. Results revealed that parasite prevalence predicted measures of authoritarian governance, and did so even when statistically controlling for other threats to human welfare. So it was, it was pathogen prevalence, particularly one additional threat, famine, also uniquely predicted authoritarianism. Okay, so it's famine and disease. Together, these results further substantiate the parasite stress hypothesis of authoritarianism, and suggest that societal differences in authoritarian governance result in part from cultural differences in individuals' authoritarian personalities. There's the data. Now, you, you look, this is just, it's just unbelievable. So look at this. So one is authoritarian governance, right? There's the correlation with pathogen prevalence, 0.42. So there's another um, figure that I didn't show here that shows it even. This is from study two. Study one, the correlation was 0.65. It's like, huh, isn't that interesting? Maybe the reason that there are authoritarian countries in the world is because there's too many infectious diseases. And so the way to, to get rid of authoritarianism is to get rid of infectious diseases. So, God, who would have ever guessed that? You know, and look at the... It, warfare was negative 0.11, right? You'd think that might be associated with authoritarianism. Mal, malnutrition wasn't even a very big predictor. You know, famine actually meant... Hit the, hit, the, hit the equation. So famine and the probability of disease. Man. 
In this video, Jordan Peterson explains conscientiousness being a good predictor of long-term life success. Conscientiousness is a good predictor of long-term life success. It's a good predictor negatively of divorce. So more conscientious people are less likely to get divorced. It's a really good predictor of grades. It's a decent predictor of income. It's a good predictor of social status, eventual social status. It seems to be particularly good at predicting outcomes for people who are engaged in managerial, administrative, and process management occupations. And so all of those occupations are characterized by the necessity of reliability, integrity, and um, attention to detail. It's not associated with creativity, right? That's openness. So the open people are better artists and entrepreneurs by all appearances. So, altogether, conscientiousness seems to be a relatively positive trait. And so then you might wonder why there's a distribution, right? Like, why isn't everybody hyper-conscientious? Well, it appears, at least in part, that, as with all the other personality dimensions, there's increasing price to be paid as you deviate from the average. And so, unconscientious people, they tend to rely on others to support them. They're not particularly ambitious or reliable. But they're not particularly rigid either. And so one possibility might be that low levels of conscientiousness are an asset at certain times when combined with other traits. So, for example, the data isn't all in on this yet, but it seems to me quite likely that orderliness, which is an aspect of conscientiousness, so conscientiousness breaks down into orderliness and industriousness. And those actually seem to be importantly different. I think orderliness probably puts an additional constraint on creativity. You know, so we've studied entrepreneurs for a long time. And uh, it's clear that higher levels of orderliness certainly aren't associated with entrepre entrepreneurial capacity. And I have the sneaking suspicion that that's because, you know, orderly people are very concerned with doing whatever needs to be done in the particular way that it's supposed to be done. And the problem with that is, is that if you're creative, so if you're engaged in a creative enterprise, the thing flips around on you a lot. Like there's a lot of transformations as you're moving towards the end. And that's not exactly something an orderly person is going to appreciate. I also suspect that orderly people are likely to, they're too likely to obey rules to be entrepreneurial or creative. Now obviously obeying rules has its utility, right? But it doesn't when the rules are wrong or when they start to interfere with something that might be conceptualized as higher, a higher value than the rules themselves. For conscientious people, it's not self-evident that there are more important values than following the rules and doing things properly. And so, you know, that's part of what makes them reliable workers and decent citizens and all that sort of thing. It's also partly what tips them towards conservatism on the political spectrum. So, the best predictors of political conservatism are low openness and high conscientiousness, particularly orderliness. So actually liberals and conservatives don't seem to be much different than one another 
in terms of industriousness, but they're quite markedly different in terms of orderliness. Or, you know, you could say, well, what predicts liberalism is high openness and low conscientiousness, particularly orderliness, uh, because you don't necessarily have to just be predicting con conservatism. So, now, you remember the big two model. So, conscientiousness lumps in with emotional stability and agreeableness to produce stability. And as people age, they become more stable. They become more conscientious, more emotionally stable, and more agreeable. And, you know, you probably interpret that somewhat pleasantly as an improvement in maturity. So, and conscientiousness is quite highly correlated with neuroticism negatively. So it turns out, generally speaking, that the more conscientious you are, the less neurotic you are. And we, we think that that might be actually because of the tendency of conscientiousness as a trait manifested across time to stabilize environments. You know, so if you're a conscientious person, imagine that because you're conscientious but not perfectionistic, let's say, you stay on top of your homework and you get your assignments done, let's even say ahead of time. Well, partly what that means is that the amount that you have to worry about how you're going to be doing decreases. And of course, if you're conscientious over time, your field of opportunities opens up from an employment perspective, plus your income increases and you've stabilized the environment around you, and so there's less uncertainty in it and more security. And so, you know, it could easily be that conscientiousness has its effect on neuroticism by stabilizing the environment, taking the uncertainty out of it, and then making people not so much really less, like lower in neuroticism, but just less likely to be anxious and in emotional pain in general. So, Feeling stressed, left without gravity, in an environment that gets more and more complicated and complex every day? Untangle your mind and go back to the roots of clear thinking. Get the original text of the Leviathan by Hobbes, the two treatises of government by Locke, the social contract by Rousseau, plus the U.S. Constitution from Pennsylvania, bound together into just one practical book. That's right. Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and the U.S. Constitution bound together into just one practical book to keep your costs low.